0: Hello, welcome to The Word Diet on the Pure Radio Network. My name is Eric Schonberg. My goal with this show is to help people read and understand the amazing Word of God. The show is named for my book project, The Word Diet, reading a chapter a day for a year from the Bible to understand the arc of the Scriptures. The Word Diet is good for a devotional, but ideally it's done in groups or at least with partners. That way you get better accountability and richer discussion. And it's fine for seasoned Bible readers, but I'm aiming the project at novices and strugglers, those who have not yet gotten into the great Word of God. If this is you, get a few friends to join you. If this isn't you, I'll bet you got a few friends with you in that position, so start a group, a Word Diet group. Help them get into the great Word of God. More information is available about the book project at thoroughlyequipped.org. For the radio show, we're in the book of Ephesians, my favorite book on Christian theology and practice. My goal with the show is the same as the book. To encourage you to read and help you understand the Bible, so please read along with us before, during, and after listening to the show. Right now, we're in the middle of Ephesians 5, 1 through 20, a passage where Paul is talking about living a life of holiness, purity, and love. In the previous segment, we got up through chapter 5, verse 7, and you can hear that discussion, as always, through podcasts of The Word Diet. So now we'll cover verses 8 through 14. You were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light, for the fruit of the light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth, and find out what pleases the Lord. Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. It is shameful even to mention what the disobedient do in secret, but everything exposed by the light becomes visible, and everything that is illuminated becomes a light. This is why it's said, Wake up, sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. So, verses 1 and 2 is live a life of love. Verses 3 through 7 would be pursue a path of purity. And now we're talking about walking in the light as opposed to darkness. Another way to read this passage is that everything is motivating what comes with the call in chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, to imitate the life of love that Christ has shown for us, most particularly by coming to earth and dying on a cross for bozos like us. And if that's the way to read it, then verses 5 through 7 was to be holy by God's judgment against sin and non-Christian sinners, refuse to blend them with the world in light of God's good gifts. Now we would have motivation number two in verses 8 through 14 as light, and as people of the light, again, your behavior follows from your identity. It goes back to chapter 4, verse 1, where he talks about living a life, walking a walk worthy of the calling we have received. Appropriately then, Paul starts here with identity and character. Verse 8, you were darkness and you are light. You were the one thing, now you're the other. So again, you should live like that. Now notice that Paul doesn't say you were in darkness. That would sound like one who straggled into it or maybe blaming the environment. Likewise, Paul doesn't say you're in the light. The focus here is being light. What we do is one thing, where we walk is another, but All of it should be consistent with our character. The emphasis here is character, identity. You were darkness, you are light. That also makes the contrast that much starker. He's done something similar. Go back to Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, as he's talking about salvation in our identity. Paul writes there, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath, or as the old NIV puts it, objects of wrath. So you're on one side or the other. In Revelation, you have the mark of the beast or you have the seal of the spirit. Which team are you on? And we used to be on one nasty team, and now we've moved to the glorious team within the kingdom of God. Paul does something similar in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. Do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God." And the focus in that passage is on identity. It's not those who commit adultery, it's adulterers. It's not people who struggle with greed, it's people who are identified as the greedy. And then in verse 11, Paul doesn't say, that is what some of you did. He says, that is what some of you were. That was your identity, that was your character. But then you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of our God. That's our new identity, washed, sanctified, justified. The believer is not one who doesn't sin. The believer is one who's not known by their sin because they have embraced the grace of God. So from there, identity leads to behavior. Paul writes here that you were once darkness, now you are light in the Lord, therefore live as children of light. Then continues into verse 9, talking about bearing fruit of goodness, righteousness, and truth that is the fruit of the light. We're conforming to the identity we have as children of the light, and if the fruit is not there, it's not consistent with that. Maybe you're not really in the light if there's no fruit of that sort. Again, it gets you to ask you and your friends some uncomfortable questions. Am I really in the light if I'm not living as children of the light? We're not saved by our works, but our works are indicative of our identity and our character to a large extent. We need to reflect God's light because we are light. Verse 10 is also a cool phrase, find out what pleases the Lord. It implies a search, a process, it implies some growth and an attitude and an outlook. Is that our desire to find out what pleases the Lord? How do we do that? It's a process. We have the word, we have prayer, we have godly people around us, and we're going to grow in that ability to find out what pleases the Lord. How do we do this? We know God versus making God in our own image, and we see it lived out in relationships we practice this. We learn about it as we go. Verse 11 is a contrast, have nothing to do with fruitless deeds. It's not about having no contact with fruitless people from a biblical perspective. It's the deeds that we're not to mix with. In 1 Corinthians 5, 9 through 11, Paul also draws a line between people who do fruitless things that are believers and non-believers. If you have fruitless people among people who claim to be believers, that's much more problematic. So, there's a call here to practice church discipline among those who claim to be believers, and there's still a, a reason to be careful when you're dealing with non-believers, but the standards are quite different, as is clear in 1 Corinthians 5, 9-11. through 11. The word fruitless is very powerful, reminiscent to 1 Peter 1.18, living a profitless life. And then later in verse 11, he talks about exposing them, reproving them properly. My favorite verse on this is Galatians 6.1 where it says, brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently, but watch yourselves, or you may also be tempted. It's difficult to do this. You who are spiritual or live by the Spirit are the ones who should restore that person gently. The verb expose is also interesting, that many times there is a role for secrecy in trying to hide sin and shame. And so when we expose those things, in combination with Galatians 6.1, there's a need to do it gently. People are hiding things, and so reproving them properly is going to be a delicate procedure. It doesn't mean we shouldn't press into that. It's also going to be difficult, but it is a delicate thing and should be handled appropriately. Verse 12 is also interesting that it's shameful to even mention these things. So a lot of times it's not relevant or edifying or it's a waste of time, not helpful or uplifting. Sometimes we feel better about ourselves because we talk about those who are struggling, or it's just easier to talk about the sins of others than it is to look in the mirror for ourselves. When we talk about the sins of others in the church, and especially in the world, is it really helpful? Does it feed our pride? Does it make ministry more difficult? Does it create stumbling blocks for others? Is it really just an excuse not to proceed further in our own sanctification? Putting 11 and 12 together, you have some interesting options. It could be that 11, Paul has in mind Christians, and 12, he has in mind non-Christians. Verse 12, you've got to deal with sin in the church, so it can't be that he's talking about not mentioning those things. They have to be mentioned to be dealt with. And verse 11 has a similar tension. How can you have nothing to do with them, but still expose them? So there are some challenges in exactly what Paul is trying to talk about. How do you expose them in verse 11 without going into detail in verse 12? Then in verses 13 and 14, Paul makes the argument using the metaphor that light exposes and makes these things visible. That as we bring the light, as we are light, we're going to make these things visible to others. And maybe that's by conduct, maybe it's by word Maybe it's by deeds that contrast with the deeds of darkness. But in any case, living as light, being light, walking in the light, will allow these things to become visible and illuminated. Paul closes verse 14 by quoting what is probably a hymn. We don't know of it as a verse, but it's probably something that was sung in the early church. If so, this is a good time to read Colossians 3.16. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. As for the hymn itself, Wake up, sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you, seems to be talking about non-Christians. Wake up, sleeper, rise from the dead. If it were just wake-up sleeper, we might think it's Christians who are not walking in the light. But wake-up sleeper, rise from the dead seems to indicate non-Christians. And then, again, that identity we have in the light, Christ will shine on you as a believer, as one in his kingdom. Christ will shine on you and through you, what Paul is motivating here in verses 8 through 14. Now, this passage is similar to many others in Scripture. We have themes of lights and shadows, darkness, ignorance, and evil, often used as metaphors for walking in the light and something similar to this. Jesus is the light of the world. Don't put your light under a bushel and so forth. So if I were preaching on this, it'd be an extended riff on what to do with the metaphor in our own lives. Do we shine? Do we burn other people with our light? Do we blind other people with our light? Where do you put your lighter? And so on. We're called to be light. We are light is what Paul says here. What's that look like for each of us? I hope you're challenged to live in the light, to be light, as Paul talks about here. All right, it's time to take a break. Please check out Proclaim from Pure Radio, Kentuckiana's Christian Community Bulletin, available online at pureradio.org and with free paper editions in store at 200 locations. Please spread the word about Pure Radio, this station, and this show. We'll be back in a minute. Welcome back to the word diet. In the previous segment, we did Ephesians 5, 8 through 14, and we're going to move on to the next section now. We look at Ephesians 5 as a whole. We did verses 1 through 7, which was a list of conduct that Paul looked for in imitating a life of love, living a life of holiness. The central passage is verses 8 through 14 to live, love, and be light as God is light for us. And then with verse 15 and following then we're back to the list angle of paul giving a number of instructions the other way to structure ephesians 5 1 through 20 is that it opens with the call to imitate the life of love in verses 1 and 2 and then from there he's providing motivations for doing that so if we read it that way then verses 3 through 7 is the call to be holy 8 through 14 is the call to be light And now in verses 15 through 17, we'll see the motivation that it's the very nature of wisdom to live in this manner. So let's read 15 through 17. Be very careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. So we're here talking about lifestyle as we have throughout chapter 5 and really from chapter 4, verse 1 on. That's the key verb from chapter 4, verse 1 through chapter 6, verse 9, to live a life, walk a walk, worthy of the calling that we have received. So the phrase here means to watch carefully how you walk about. And this speaks to diligence, exactness, and accuracy. Live with purpose. Don't live without intention. Don't try to live randomly. Everything we do should have purpose. And how it's cast here is in terms of wisdom. Verse 15 talks about wisdom, that's one who lives skillfully, who constructs their life well. One thinks, I think, quickly here of Matthew 7, 24 through 27, where Jesus talks about everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice It's like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell with a great crash. And it's so important to know in those verses that are recorded from Jesus in Matthew 7 that it's the same storms, it's the same materials of the house. The difference is simply the foundation on which the house is built. And Jesus makes the comparison to being wise, listening and obeying, being foolish, listening and then failing to obey, deciding to go our own way, deciding to build on our own foundation, our own decisions. Paul has a great passage on this in First Corinthians three ten through 15. By the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as a wise builder, and someone else is building on it, but each one should build with care. For no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. If anyone builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, their work will be shown for what it is because the day will bring it to light it will be revealed with fire and the fire will test the quality of each person's work if what has been built survives the builder will receive a reward if it is burned up the builder will suffer loss but yet will be saved even though only as one escaping through the flames again the same idea is building with care there paul changes the metaphor the foundation is already set for the christian that's jesus christ and then you have choices how to build on that foundation, gold, silver, costly stones, instead of wood, hay, or straw. In the Matthew 7 passage, we have an option of the foundations that we're going to use in the metaphor that Jesus developed. So, the idea is the same. Wise is also used in the Old Testament for the skilled artisans of the temple. And the idea here is that it's a life built well and built to last. Hosea talks about our life is like a morning mist, and we can live that way as if it doesn't matter. But instead, we're called to build in such a way that it will last. Going God's way is in our best interest. Three quotes here. Berdiev said, Life in time remains without meaning if it does not find its meaning in eternity. William James, the greatest use of life is to spend it for something that outlasts it. And Jim Elliott, He is no fool who gives that which he cannot keep in order to gain that which he cannot lose. Then in the first half of verse 16, we have an inspirational phrase, make the most of every opportunity. Some other great passages on this, Psalm 90, verse 12, teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. John 9, 4, Christ says, As long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. Colossians 4 and 5, be wise in the way you act toward outsiders, make the most of every opportunity. And James four fourteen: you do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. The verb here for making the most of is translated elsewhere as redeem, which is pretty cool, or buy up as in costly investments. And so the idea of redemption, turning something that's negative or neutral into something positive, or the idea of making investments, which imply a cost on the front end, but greater returns on the back end, both of those are appropriate. We should invest our time well. It's short, it's irretrievable. We've got the phrase that we're killing time And that's not a very good idea. We don't have a lot of time. Why would we kill it? Use the time that we have to our advantage and to the kingdom of God. We can get distracted. We can engage in ritual. We can be complacent. But instead, we should be focused. We should be engaged in thought rather than mere ritual and routine. And we should be striving for growth rather than struck in complacency. Paul uses the same word to describe Christ's work of redemption. To buy back, including out of bondage and slavery. So again, very cool language here. The word for time is chiron, which means a decisive moment, rather than chronos, which is using clock time. So we could think of it in terms of days, minutes, and seconds, but he's also alluding to the key moments in life, making sure that we take opportunity there and take care of business, if you will. The last phrase in verse 16 is also interesting it says because the days are evil so that's what motivates early in verse 16 making the most of every opportunity now what does paul exactly mean here because the days are evil could mean despite evil don't use evil as an excuse it might be tempting to go along with other people to go with the flow to go with the world but don't do that because the days are evil despite that go the other direction Or maybe in the face of evil, so here this would be more of a call to justice, make the most of every opportunity, because the days are evil, you have great opportunities that are important, calls to justice to make the world right through the power of God. And then finally, maybe it's in contrast to evil, and that would fit with the context of the passage here where he talks so much about being a light, if you have the darkness of evil, then The light of the gospel is that much easier to see. Make the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. You have a great opportunity in front of you. How often do we respond the other way? Things are evil, therefore we hide in our bunker. Things are evil, therefore we give in. Things are evil, but we feel powerless to work for justice. Paul is calling us here to make the most of every opportunity in the face of evil, despite evil. And then finally, verse 17, therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. So this sums up these three verses, which were focused on wisdom as opposed to foolishness, and then with an exclamation point about understanding the Lord's will. For me, this immediately brings to mind Romans 12.2, Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Again, the early part of that verse is huge. Do not conform to the pattern of this world. They're going to live foolishly in light of what Paul's been talking about here in darkness, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. There's a process of growth, sanctification here, and a lot of the action is in the mind. That's how we figure out to test and approve what God's good, pleasing, and perfect will, in fact, is. The key words in this verse are foolish in contrast to understand. And the word understand is a Greek word that means to bring together. So there's a sense of synthesis here of wisdom with action and with all the things we've been talking about in chapter five. That Wisdom comes from walking a walk, living a life, doing the process that's being talked about here. In order to make decisions well, we synthesize Christianity with all facets of life. We're able to bring together the issues of life in wisdom as opposed to foolishness and to know and to be able to obey the will of God. You think about Jesus and dealing with the temptations in Matthew 4. Each time he receives severe temptations, but he knows how to answer it. In fact, three times from the book of Deuteronomy, which is hilarious, but uses Deuteronomy appropriately to fend off the temptations, the well-directed temptations of the devil. And Jesus stands against those because he understands the will of God and the Word of God. And this is one of the real tricks of life, knowing when to do and what to say. It's knowing what to say and how to say it, when to say it, which scriptures apply. You know, Think of passages like the fifth commandment, which says to honor your parents, but then Luke 14, Jesus says to hate your parents. So, knowing how to balance those, knowing when to apply the one, how to apply the one, and how to apply the other is essential to living out biblical wisdom. And that takes time, study, godly counsel to help us live a synthesized Christian life, to grow in our faith, to live a life worthy of the calling we have received, to be holy, to be light, to be pure and wise as Paul calls us to here in Ephesians 5 1 through 20. In contrast, the world says that many of our ideas are foolishness, but in the light of the gospel, it's in fact wisdom as Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 1. And these are areas of great importance for us to figure out God's good and perfect will and when it calls us to go in another direction, we think of words like First Timothy 6.11, but you, man of God, flee from all this and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. We do that by fleeing what the world offers, which is in fact foolishness and darkness, and instead we pursue love, light, holiness, and wisdom. Lord, following Paul here in verses 15 through 17, we ask for help in being careful in how we live. We want to live lives of wisdom, not foolishness. We want to understand what your will is. And then from there to have the knowledge and wisdom to know that it's in our best interest and to rely on your spirit in us to listen to your conviction, to your counsel, and have the courage to do the things that you want us to do. Help us to make the most of every opportunity whatever that looks like in our neighborhood, our family, our work, and our church. And the days are evil. They're always evil. And Lord, we just pray for your help in the midst of that. We pray that in the midst of darkness, that we would be a light that would point people to you. Lord, we're so thankful for you and what you've done in our lives to redeem us and to work your goodwill inside of us. We thank you for these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Time to take a break. Stay tuned. We'll be back in a minute. In the previous segment, we got through Ephesians 5.17. In this segment, we're going to finish this entire section of Ephesians 5.1-21 by covering verses 18-21. through 21. There Paul writes, Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. Sing and make music from your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. The first thing here is to talk about the structure. In the Greek, there's actually two commands, both of them in verse 18, all in one sentence. The commands are not to get drunk and to be filled with the Holy Spirit. So an obvious contrast there, don't fill yourself with alcohol, fill yourself with the Spirit. And the rest of it is modified, clarified, extended, and applied through five participles. Verse 19, speaking verse 19, at the end, singing and making music, verse 20, thanking, and verse 21, submitting, that should naturally follow the decisions not to get drunk and to be filled with the Spirit. So instead, you could read it as, don't get drunk, but instead be filled with the Spirit, speaking, singing, making music, thanking, and submitting. All those things directly follow from the commands in verse 18. Paul does something similar in Colossians three fourteen through seventeen. The parallel passage there, where he writes, "And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you are called to peace, and be thankful." So the first half of verse 18 is do not get drunk and that's the obvious command from elsewhere in scripture as well notice it implies that drinking is okay there's other verses that also support that position it's not drinking that's the issue it is getting drunk that is the issue it's a longer discussion that i don't care to get into since it is so obvious from the scriptures but the point here is drunkenness and what it leads to which is debauchery An old joke here is if you have too much booze, you see double and you act single, and that's not good for anybody. You should stay in control of your body. Getting drunk is not appropriate, but ironically, you give up control of your body later in verse 18 properly, and that's to be filled with the Spirit. Again, a phrase that appears quite a bit in the New Testament. Guthrie argues that this command can be seen as the culmination of the entire book, to be filled with the Spirit is a huge deal. Filled means to be controlled by. There's other uses of this, to be controlled by wrath in Luke 4.28, to be filled with awe in Luke 5.26, Acts 13.45, to be filled with envy. But here it's quite a passive verb. How do you obey it? You, you are filled with the Holy Spirit, the breath, the wind, the power of the Spirit through availability. We make ourselves available and surrender to the Spirit. Our first need is to be born or baptized of the Holy Spirit. For example, Romans 8 9 talks about how if you have the Spirit, you have Christ. They go together. You can't have one without the other. We also have a reference here to the Spirit as the spring of living water. G. Campbell Morgan says, as Christ is yielded to, he fills all the life and persistently to such an effect that the rivers overflow and running forth bring life to those beyond. This filling is hindered when any part of the life is shut up against the spirit. Our constant responsibility is that yielding ourselves to his inspection, to his direction, to his effective operation. As we do, he fills, and that means he cleanses, energizes, and transforms the life, and so passes out through the life in the influences which heal and help others. As for the verb being filled with the Holy Spirit, number of interesting grammatical points here. It's imperative. It's a command. It's present, which means it's now and ongoing. It's passive. It's something available to us. And it's also plural. As for it being present and continuing, John Stott says, We have been sealed with the Spirit once and for all, but we need to be filled with the Spirit and go on being filled every day and every moment of the day. So hopefully this is a continuously expanding experience, but it can be quenched, 1 Thessalonians 5.19, and the Spirit can be grieved, as we saw in Ephesians 4.30, or as Dwight Moody memorably put it, I leak. Why do I need to be filled? Well, because I leak. On the passivity of it, Oswald Sanders says, to be filled with the Spirit means simply that the Christian voluntarily surrenders life and will to the Spirit, through faith, the believer's personality is permeated, mastered, and controlled by the spirit. The meaning of filled is not to pour into a passive container, but to take possession of the mind. That's the meaning found in Luke five twenty-six. They were filled with awe. Underneath this, I think we can point to the somewhat ironic role of spiritual disciplines, that they're a form of work. They are activities that we undergo or purpose not to do, as in the case of silence and solitude, but they're purposely done in order to make ourselves more available to the Spirit and His working. This is not simply a reference to laying in a hammock and making ourselves available as some sort of passivity and laziness, complacency. There is an activity here. Francis Schaeffer called it active passivity, and the role of the spirits through prayer, study, service, community, worship, and the like are essential for us to be filled with the Spirit. On the plural nature of this verb, it's not obvious in the English, but it's there in the Greek that this is meant for the community rather than simply the individual. We saw this in chapter 4 when Paul emphasized unity. Guthrie puts it this way, The work of the Spirit is to create a new human and right relationship among human beings. So this verse 18 is really interesting, and it's an interesting comparison. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery, and instead be filled with the Spirit. It's the best Paul and the Spirit could come up with, so let's spend a little time thinking about this. Both of these can be spoken of as being under the influence. Both of them speak to greater happiness, although the former is quite temporary, through numbing and forgetting. Alcohol is a depressant. What the Spirit brings instead is more joy than happiness, a joy that, despite circumstances, permeates our being. Both are leading to less repression, in the case of drunkenness, Weersby points out that it'll make you less repressed to the point of being a fool, but in the case of the Holy Spirit, being a fool for Christ's sake. Drunkenness calls attention to the self. Being filled with the Spirit allows one to witness for Christ. John Stott talks about alcohol causes you to lose control. The Spirit causes you to gain control. And then again, after the commands, there are the participles. In verse 19, all of them connected to praise, speaking, singing, and making music. The speaking part of it is interesting. At least in my circles, we don't do much of that. The idea of responsive reading and the like. It's interesting that Revelation has 14 doxologies, 10 of which are spoken. If we're trying to emulate the worship of heaven, we should do more speaking and chanting and less singing In an obscure part of Romans, Paul says some similar things. Romans 15, 5 through 11, May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you the same attitude of mind toward each other that Christ Jesus had, so that with one mind and one voice, you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So there he's speaking of the one mind, the unity, the one voice of praise. that He's talking about here, endurance, encouragement, the same attitude of mind. Very similar to the stuff that he's talked about here in Ephesians 5. Picking back up at Romans 15, 7, Accept one another then, just as Christ accepted you, in order to bring praise to God. So unity and praise connect to each other. Verse 8, For I tell you that Christ has become a servant of the Jews on behalf of God's truth, so that the promises made to the patriarchs might be confirmed, and moreover, that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy, as it is written, Therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles, I will sing the praises of your name, Again, it says, rejoice, you Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles. Let all the peoples extol him. And Paul there, citing three Old Testament verses, Psalm 1849, Deuteronomy 32, 43, and Psalm 117, verse 1, that bringing the Gentiles in, that salvation, that Jew-Gentile unity, Paul's discussion in Ephesians 2 and 3, all of these topics ultimately culminate in praise, in speaking, singing, and making music. Guthrie says, this is one voice composed as many voices, whether in unison or harmony. And again, it's a form of unity. When the church sings together, it announces the new community the Spirit has created in Christ. Back to Ephesians 5 verse 20 then, has always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So here Paul is talking about the vital matter of gratitude. This goes along with vertical worship, vertical gratitude, thanking God for dying for Bozos like us, thanking God for letting us have the Spirit inside of us, thanking God for working in partnership with us in ministry. The opposites of these are envy, thanklessness, you know, thinking we deserve everything. It's terrible. And so gratitude is absolutely essential here. And when we don't express gratitude to God, we're not very good to be around personally either it tends to undermine unity here paul is talking about gratitude that is correct in direction continual in duration and complete in dominion some verses here philippians 4 6 do not be anxious about anything but in every situation by prayer and petition with thanksgiving present your request to god first thessalonians five eighteen. give thanks in all circumstances for this is god's will for you in christ jesus people are always trying to figure out god's will well, God's will is for you to have gratitude, to give thanks in all circumstances. We know that from 1 Thessalonians 5.18. And then finally, we have the bridge verse in verse 21. It's the last participle, to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Or reading it again in verse 18, be filled with the Spirit, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. It's the last participle that modifies how we are filled with the Spirit. Again, we've gone from the vertical of verses 19 and 20, worship and gratitude, to earthly relationships which are determined by submission to one another out of reverence for christ so verse 21 finishes off paul's thought which starts in verse 18 it also bridges us to the famous part of ephesians 5 which is on marriage and then the relationships with children and the workplace in chapter 6 as we start a new section so the idea of submitting to one another out of reverence for christ is what sets the table for the three specific earthly relationships that he's going to talk about. But before we start into that, it's time to take a break. If you're on Facebook, like Pure Radio and friend me there. Questions and comments are welcome on my Facebook. Previous episodes are available through podcast on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, and so on. We'll be back in a minute. Welcome back to The Word Diet. In the previous segment, we finished the long segment from chapter 5 verses 1 through 21 of Ephesians, and we treated verse 21 as a bridge verse. It's both the ending of that entire section, particularly verses 18 through 21, and it also bridges to start the famous discussion of marriage that follows in verses 22 through 33. There's a lot more to say about submission, before we get into the discussion and how it relates to marriage and ultimately to parenting and our work relationships. Ephesians five eighteen it said, Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit, and then concluding in verse 21, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Looking ahead to our coverage of verse 22, where wives are to submit to husbands, it's interesting that the word submit actually doesn't even occur in verse 22. Literally, the Greek text reads, the wife to her own husband as to the Lord. And so the idea of submission is actually directly relying on its use in verse 21. It doesn't mean that the idea is not valid if defined properly. Again, that's a much longer discussion we'll have on another segment but it does mean that it depends vitally on verse 21. In fact, everything in the marriage discussion from verses 22 through 33 is a matter of mutual submission, wives to husbands and husbands to wives. As John Stott puts it, what is beyond question is that the three paragraphs which follow are given as examples of Christian submission and that the emphasis throughout is on submission. Looking back at the ground we've covered in Ephesians, remember that Paul's first priority when he got to the second half of Ephesians and our responsibilities in Christ, when he talked about living a life, walking a walk worthy of the calling we've received, his first topic was unity, and submission, of course, is crucial to that as well. Guthrie talks about this in the context of what he calls the worship wars and how we battle over music in church. And a lot of times the loss of unity is from a failure to submit, as we'll talk about here in verse 21, submitting to one another. Guthrie says debates about church music then are rarely debates about church music. They're ultimately disagreements over the shape and identity of a community. And tying it to verse 21, the willingness of people to submit, to be humble, put others first, and the like. Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians 11, 18 through 22, In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you. And to some extent, I believe it. No doubt there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. Sarcastic there by Paul. So then when you come together, it's not for the Lord's supper you eat. For when you are eating, some of you go ahead with your own private suppers. As a result, one person remains hungry and another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? certainly not in this matter. And so church music is obviously different, but it's the same. It's people putting themselves first over others, failing to submit to one another in the way that Paul is describing here. So the idea of submission, to define it, a working definition at least for our purposes, is to humbly and voluntarily yield one's rights to someone else. So first of all, this implies the existence of those rights, and that's an important distinction. There are many value sets and governances, et cetera, where the rights aren't yours to begin with, but here the rights are given to you. And that's especially important when we're reading this in the context of Greek and Roman society, where many parties did not have equal rights. Paul assumes those rights, but then says they are to be submitted in many cases, to be freely given. And often this involves far greater strength. I think this is actually an example of the mystery that i played with back in ephesians 3:18, where paul in talking about love says he wishes that they would have power he prays that they would they would have power together with all the lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of christ why do you need power to grasp the love of christ well it takes power sometimes to handle difficult teachings or in this context to handle something which can be difficult like submission Now, submission is not meant to lead to exploitation or abuse or injustice. As we'll talk about later, there are limits to submission. There are contexts in which submission is not appropriate or ongoing submission is not commanded and not wise. This is not a matter of subjection or subjugation. Certainly, in Paul's time, this would have been a key issue. Roman and Greek culture, but even in our time and even in our own country, Uh, we can look at a variety of modern values where it's not something that's at the top of people's list to submit. First of all, to have rights that are submittable, but then once you have those rights to submit them, it is utterly consistent with the ministry of Jesus and utterly inconsistent with the ways of the world. We look with friends and peers. A lot of times, submission should be easier. In fact, I'd say, if you can't, are you really friends? But there are also some greater temptations here. We take people for granted. We sometimes abuse friends and family because they have to love us or we're close to them. But submission in those relationships should be relatively easy. And if we can't submit in those relationships, that's certainly a bad sign for being a disciple of Jesus and being comfortable in the goodness of God's kingdom. There are some challenges when there are differential levels of power, but You've got a matter there of submitting on the inside. Sometimes you have to submit on the outside. But what's happening on the inside in your mind and in your heart? This is a theme throughout the Christian life. Jesus talks about it. Paul talks about it. Galatians 5, 1 and 13. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. So Galatians 5, 1, Paul asserts the freedom, the rights that we have as Christians. But verse 13, you, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free. But do not use your freedom to indulge the sinful nature, rather serve one another humbly in love. So we have rights as Christians, but they are to frequently be submitted in these relationships, in community, and even with those outside the world. All vibrant Christian relationships are based on mutual submission. And then there are questions of submitting to church leaders, to the government, to the weaker and stronger brother, interesting topics all no one has done this more than Christ. Christ had every reason not to submit, and yet did submit fully from on high. Philippians 2, 3-8 Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, rather in humility value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage, rather he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness being found in appearance as a man he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death even death on a cross so jesus is the ultimate example of this and if we're disciples of jesus we follow him in sufferings we follow him in submission practically you don't need to be a believer to understand this that a conciliatory attitude helps with relationships just as a practical matter. And as we'll talk about next week, it's especially the case in marriage. Randolph Ray said, marriage is never finished. The lesson is never learned. The effort is never at an end. Marriage, like life, is a matter of solving the little things. The big ones generally take care of themselves. It is a matter of surrendering small personal preferences. And if you've been married for any length of time, that statement is as obvious as my arm is long Now, in all of the above, submission is not equal to universal obedience. We'll see this as we delve into the passage in the next few weeks. Ephesians 5.22, Paul qualifies submission as to the Lord. In chapter 6, verse 1, it's in the Lord. Chapter 6, verse 5, just as you would obey Christ. A lot of people read these verses out of context, but there's always that phrase there that if it's not as to the Lord or in the Lord or just as you would obey Christ. In other words, if you're being led into self-harm or sin or something else, then submission ends at that point. There are boundaries to be drawn here. This is certainly the matter when it comes to obedience to the state. For example, Acts five twenty nine, Peter and the apostles replied, we must obey God rather than human beings. So, Christians should be excellent citizens except when the state calls us to sin or calls us to deny God or worship idols or the like. But submission to the state is something that we find in the scriptures as well. Now, submission is also not a matter of complacency, apathy, and fatalism. This gets to my comment a minute ago that you could be submissive on the outside but not submissive on the inside. This is not passivity. It's an active recognition, embrace of one's own rights, and then voluntarily submitting them. For this to be done properly, it needs to have the proper ideal motivation out of reverence for Christ is the language here. Hebrews 5.7 says this is the key to prayer. Verse 25 in Ephesians says, As Christ loved the church, again, chapter 6, verse 1, in the Lord. Chapter 6, verse 5, just as you would obey Christ. If you're not doing that, then it's not the proper motivation. And maybe you get credit for doing the right thing, but motives matter as well. Now, this idea of submitting and yielding our rights is completely against our nature. We like to control and manipulate others. We like to praise ourselves. We're quick to defend and exercise our own rights. Again, acknowledging our rights is one thing, but what do we do with them is the second thing. And this often goes against our nature, our sin nature, to be clear. It's really difficult to do this without Ephesians 1 through 3. If you're not submitted to the Father, if you're not in a saving relationship with a gracious God, then how are you gonna do this with other people for very long or do it well? It's also difficult when trust has been violated with a person in particular or generally in one's background. And so, you or others around you may have particular challenges here that are difficult because of their past. Submitting when you've been violated is much more difficult. But even if the desire and will are there, it is completely beyond our own resources. We have to rely on the Holy Spirit for counsel, conviction, and courage in what is a really difficult matter. Again, more difficult for some than for others, but not easy for anybody. Again, pointing forward to marriage is absolutely crucial within marriage. There's an old joke here that I married Mr. Wright, but I didn't know their first name was always. And so that's not going to be a happy marriage. The person that is going to try to submit in that context, or certainly being married to someone like that, you're looking for mutual submission, not pride, arrogance, deceit, and the like but ultimately it's in our best interest. Richard Foster said submission is laying down the terrible burden of having to have your own way. Doing so requires proper attitudes and actions, requires humility and thoughtfulness, empathy, a variety of characteristics that Paul has been describing throughout chapters four and five. Again, these get practiced in marriage, family, work, neighborhood, and so on. So that's a good introduction to the idea of submission we'll have much more to say about that in the context of marriage family and work in the weeks to come it's been good to be with you today we hope you'll join us next time on the word diet